0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 428 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm your co host and CEO of the Australian Writers Centre. And I'm here with Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of The Wolf's How. How are you, Al? Well, how
1: am I? That's a good question. Well, I'm currently hiding in my office talking to you whilst I've got one child on Zoom, one practicing the guitar and a husband who has taken himself to the office <laughs>
2: despite,
1: <laughs> despite everything. He said it's actually there's no one at the office, whereas this actual house is more crowded than my office. So he's gone mm-hmm. to the office.
0: Oh, goodness. Okay. And yes. you? The joys what of you? homeschooling. Um, I am very excited because, number one, spring has sprung. Well, not quite, but, you know, it's about, it's about to spring. It's about to spring. It's about to sprung. It's about to sprang. (laughs) But the reason I noticed this is obviously the weather's getting a little bit warmer. But when I go into my garden, something I did not have before, all these little green shoots are coming out. And a pretty awesome chick gave me a subscription to (laughs) Gardening Australia. So... (laughs) That was a great
1: be, surprise. I feel <laughs> as though this awesome chick might be the one that you ring, you know, in hysterics going, can you tell me why my lemon trees are curling at the leaves? Would it be that chick perchance?
0: Yes. And do you know the number of times I have to stop myself stop myself from texting you? Because the one that I was going to text the other day was um, on the lemon tree and um, was that there are lemons on the lemon tree where all the peel has been removed. <laughs> oh. And which implies some kind of creature has done it, and I'm trying to figure out what creature, because there's these lemons, they're just hanging there, but all the peel is gone. <laughs> is it the birds? Well, it's no, either birds or possums or I don't really know, well, but I it's do, quite bizarre. I do know
1: that. The current issue of Gardening Australia, and this is hashtag not sponsored by the way, this is just something (laughs) that I have a deep interest in, um, has a a very nice little guide to citrus growing in Australia. So perhaps you should have a look and see if if it's mentioned in there. Yes. Yes, no, I'm sorry, I I, can't help you with the peel. You're going to have to
3: figure
0: that one out on your own. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, thank you for the subscription. It's much appreciated. But uh, I was saying that basically I'm quite excited because I am appreciating my garden a bit more. I go out there with Rexy or Rocky and we sit there and just, you know, commune with nature. I've never done that before. I just never had a garden.
1: Oh, it's honestly, I I you know, I mean, I've been banging on about gardens on this podcast forever. (laughs) Um, It is one of the great joys of my life. I I just love Mm. it. And it is one of the reasons that I loved the garden at my old house so much was that Mm. uh, it was so carefully planned, not by me, by the person who had the house beforehand, that every single day that I went out there, there was some different thing happening. Like every day, every season, every week, there was something new and it's, Incredibly, it's a real balm for the soul, and mm. it to just to go and have a little poke—you don't have to actually do anything, like occasionally pull a weed or whatever—but um, just to go and sort of have a look. And I mean, even though my garden uh, in my new place is is a lot smaller, like the the one I was in before was a big old rambling country garden, like it was a garden. Um, mm. But this is smaller. But I was so I've done, I've taken ownership because it's taken me a few weeks to work out, you know, you know how I was going to do this. You kind of got to get used to being somewhere. But I've I've planted my oh. two uh, Firestar roses. Oh, Firestar. wow. Do you, you might remember I talked about these ages ago, but I ordered them through Knight's Roses. I saw them in, in, in Gardening Australia magazine oh. and I could not, how could I not buy a rose called the Firestar, which and yes. it was great because all of the, proceeds also went to the Victorian Rural Fire Service so I was like oh this is a winner Um, and I bought myself one and then a dear friend of mine uh, actually turned up on the doorstep the other day she said I've bought you a housewarming present and she had also she had bought me one as well so I have two of them. Oh wow. And I have put them in the garden Uh, I've sort of chosen the spot for them I've put them in the garden and I kind of feel like once you Start to do that. Once you start to plant, once you start to do that, you start to take ownership of your of your mm. little plot, uh, no matter how big it might be, whether it just be a pot plant. Um, but I think once you do that, it's sort of really for me, it's it's that whole putting down roots thing, right? Like it's, yes. it's literally that. So um, I really enjoyed getting into my garden and doing that. So. Anyway, this is not so you want to be a gardener, Valerie, yes, so no. we should probably <laughs> move on. But before we do, I just want to say one thing. One thing yes. I did do this morning that gave me great joy was mm-hmm. that I picked up a copy of a book called Malachy, mm-hmm. uh, which is written by a friend of mine, Dominic Frawley, and I was lucky enough to be one of the very first readers of this book like when, when it was at draft stage several years ago. Uh Dom asked me to have a look at it and I read it and we worked through, I, you sort of, you know, because he had written the book but he didn't uh, know much about the publishing process and so I I sort of just was, you know, the interested advisor on the sidelines um, as this book has sort of gone through the process and is now published by Wild Ningo Press and oh, great. it's a beautiful memoir of um, Malachi is Dominic's son who unfortunately... Uh, passed away at the age of 14 and it this he always wanted to publish a book before he mm. turned 15 mm. and this is his book and it's extraordinary it's a oh. it's a story of loss but life affirming it's a it's a it's a boy's story but it's also his father's story and it's a lovely book so it's coming out in September I will put a link in the show notes so you can have a look at it but it's a beautiful book and I am very very thrilled to have been you know a midwife to the process
0: Mm, wonderful. Okay, so we also want to give a big shout-out to Briley May, who kindly left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and Briley entitled it, Packed to the Drafters. <laughs> I love that. So, <laughs> Briley, a pun, right? <laughs> yes, Briley wrote, as a fledgling writer, I began listening to this podcast to see if there was anything useful in it for me. I have not been disappointed. Hearing Val and Al's guests and writers in residence share their stories, ideas, struggles and insecurities on the road to publication gives me the confidence to keep tapping away. As a lexophile, I love Word of the Week. Yay! No, Go, really? Briley! Okay. okay. <laughs> Thank you for this entertaining, informative, inclusive podcast. Oh, wow. Thank you so much, Briley. Really appreciate it. You're doing so well with that review right up until the (laughs) I love word of the week bit.
1: But I will forgive you because I know Val gets so chuffed whenever anybody mentions it. (laughs) So.
0: And if you, uh, if any other listeners have thirty seconds to uh, leave us a review or rating on um, Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice, we'd be really grateful because it helps us in the rankings. Now we've actually we're going to move on straight into our competition this week because we actually have a great interview coming up and it goes a little bit longer than usual, so we're going to crack on. We have three copies of Dinosaur Dads by award-winning author and Australian Writers' Centre presenter, Leslie Gibbs. This is her 10th picture book and you can win one of three copies. Dinosaur Dads is written in rhyme, so it's super fun to read out loud, and it has been gorgeously illustrated by Marjorie Crosby Farrell. The Diners Saw kids fight and grumble until an earth-shaking stomp echoes over the hill. Get ready, get set for daddy's galore. Here they come, here they come, here they come. Roar. Did you like my little <laughs> effort there, Al? You're a like, natural, babe. Like,
1: like, <laughs> here comes right. a storytelling podcast by <laughs> Valerie Koo.
0: <laughs> so Dinosaur Dads, it's gorgeous. It's such a great book. I've got it right here next to me. And, of course, Leslie also teaches our course writing chapter books, um, you know, for for kids. Um, uh, well, the course is for adults, but it's about writing chapter books for kids. And um, it's so popular. People ab- absolutely love it. And I'm sure you're going to love Dinosaur Dads as well. Just go to writercentercomau slash win and choose clothes on 30th August. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now, Al, and especially the lexophiles out there, and especially to uh, Briley, are you ready for the word of the week? You're dedicating the <laughs> word of the week. <laughs> I am. Uh, yes,
1: of course, I'm ready, Valerie. How could I be anything but ready after that? Okay.
0: Okay. Navy, N A V V Y, Navy. Do you know what that means? Yes, I do. Okay, yeah. I think you even know what that means, right? Mm, Yes, it's not a common word though. So it's a noun, a labourer employed in making roads, railways, canals, etc. It comes from the word navigator. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Know okay. That. It comes from the word navigator from when canals were built across England and the UK, but then it was transferred to workers on railways and roads as well. So, navvy. And that was the word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you're serious about completing your own novel manuscript, immerse yourself in our inspiring and motivational six-month program, Write Your Novel. Filled with weekly workshopping and practical lessons, you'll receive advice on structure, dialogue and much more, as well as tips on publishing. The online program fits around your weekly schedule and you'll get extensive personal feedback, from your classmates and tutor throughout the program. Margaret Morgan's novel, The Second Cure, is out now through Penguin Books Australia, and it's also being turned into a mini-series.
3: Here's what Margaret says. Hi, my name is Margaret Morgan. I'm an author. Um, I've just had my first novel published and I'm working on my second. I've been a writer all my life, um, either professionally or just for fun, and squeezed into other professions, but um, it's definitely where I'm staying now. I decided to do the course at uh, the Australian Writers' Centre, Write Your Novel, the six-month course, when a friend told me about it and I realised it was exactly what I needed at that point to help me get the novel written and to give me the kind of support I needed. I was prompted to take the course specifically because I wanted the kind of encouragement and support that a six month ongoing course would allow me. The tutor in the course was really fantastic, somebody who's written many, many novels herself and um, is very encouraging and really is good at identifying the strengths and weaknesses in writing. One of the impacts that the course has had on me has been to demonstrate to me that I actually can be a writer, can be a novelist specifically. It has allowed me to make connections that otherwise I wouldn't have been able to make within the industry and probably one of the best things about it is the writing group that was formed with a bunch of us in that particular course and that was like what three or four years ago we're still meeting every month and critiquing each other's work and it's a really valuable thing. Through the course at the Australian Writers' Centre I discovered that I really could be a novelist and that was such a revelation to me and such a delight. It was something I'd always wanted and suddenly now I've got it. I would say you really should join the Australian Writers' Centre because it's staffed by real professionals. It's a really good, well-structured organisation that's got great courses that are practical as well as inspiring. Anyone who's thinking of doing one should really think about it very seriously because it's a very, very valuable organisation and the course is terrific.
0: Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash novelwriting all right, so let's move on to our writer-in-residence this week. I had an absolutely great chat with Gabriel Bergmoser. His latest book is The Inheritance, and it's doing so well already. His first book, oh, my God, The Hunted, published by HarperCollins, was, is not only a bestseller, that a film adaptation is currently in development. So that's Ooh. all happening. Ah. Um, Gabriel is also a YA author and a playwright, but uh, this is a cracker, The Inheritance. Let's hear from Gabriel Bergmoser. Gabriel, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Valerie.
0: Congratulations on your latest book. I mean so exciting, The Inheritance. For those readers or those listeners who haven't read the book yet, can you tell us what it's about?
2: All right. So The Inheritance basically tells the story of Maggie, who we learned very early on is a fugitive of some sort. There's something in her past that she's running from. She's had a little bit of a I suppose you could charitably say a bumpy run since she ran away from something in her past and she's been hiding out up in Port Douglas, keeping her head down, trying to stay out of trouble. But when she finds out that a local gangster is extorting the guy she's working for in this bar up there, she reluctantly decides to step in to help, which sets in motion a domino effect of violent reprisals that will bring her into a collision course with the past she's been so desperate to escape from. It's kind of tricky to talk about it in more detail than that, because (laughs) if you've read the book, you'll sort of be aware there are a lot of twists and turns and a lot of kind of reveals and things going on. So I'm, I'm reticent to spoil too much. No, we hate
0: spoilers.
2: Awesome. I can avoid them like the plague, but (laughs) yeah, that's effectively the setup. So the other way to look at it is if you did read my book, the hunted last year, Maggie was a major character in the hunted and quite a mysterious major character at that. There were kind of a lot of questions about who she was, where she was coming from, what was driving her. This is the book that answers those questions. So it can completely be read as a standalone. I believe it works entirely as its own thing. But if you've read The Hunted, this is the book that will answer everything that was left over at the end of that book.
0: So let's give uh, listeners some context. As you've mentioned, you released The Hunted to great success last year. So I have no doubt this one's going to follow in its footsteps. But just give uh, listeners a little bit of an idea of, you know, your career history so far. What have you been doing before The Hunted?
2: Oh, man, so much. <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it's kind of like anything when you're pursuing a writing career, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. you sort of, uh, you sort of, Go down every path that seems to be available to you. That's in the, the general field of writing until you eventually happen on something that's hopefully at least reasonably successful. So so look, you know, I've I've jumped around a lot. You know, I was I was on a podcast for a few years. I predominantly wrote a lot of theatre in the years before the Hunted. Um, I did have three YA books published by Belfrog Books Books, an independent uh, Melbourne-based uh, Melbourne-based publisher, and so they, they were very very different. You know those were um sort of the Boone Shepard books, like Imagine Tintin meets Doctor Who set in the world of Lemony Snicket, like very, very vastly different to the kind mm. of gritty crime pulp noir settings of The Hunted or The Inheritance. But yeah, effectively, you know, I was just I was just kind of looking for opportunity wherever it might arise. And I had been really, really keen to write an adult kind of thriller novel for a while. And I'd written a couple of different attempts that just hadn't really obviously been successful or, or caught on with anyone. And The Hunted was kind of my Hail Mary option. It was this idea I'd had for a while. And if you've read The Hunted, you'll know it's got a bit of a, a, bit of a horror infusion in it. And I'd never really written in that territory before. And mm. I just thought, you know, what, I'll just go for it and see what happens. And somehow that was the thing that took off. And that was the thing mm. that propelled me to the next level, which just kind of goes to show that you really can never anticipate what it is that's going to, you know, take you from point A to point B.
0: Mm. When did you know you wanted to be a writer?
2: Look, uh, it's such an interesting question because I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I can pinpoint an exact moment that I realized I want to be a writer, but I think the moment I realized or the moment I maybe on a subconscious level understood that story was going to be my life going forward was when I was 10 years old and I went and I saw The Fellowship of the Ring for the first time. (laughs) Uh And I remember so distinctly, I don't think I'll ever forget the moment of sitting in that cinema and watching the prologue, you know, with Galadriel's uh, sort of introduction monologue over the backstory being told and just having this moment of thinking, I didn't realise that stories could be like this. And you know, I'd i been a voracious reader and a, and a film lover from a very, very early age. And I'd had a lot of obsessions growing up. I was really into, you know, unfortunate events. I was really into Animorphs. I was really into Harry Potter and, you know, all the kind of really obvious ones. But Lord of the Rings was that eye-opening, crystallizing moment of just realizing how, how truly great and all-consuming a really good story could be. And I think that just... Set me on this path of wanting to understand how it could work so well, wanting to find more stories like that and ultimately wanting to tell stories that that maybe one day after after much, much trial and error and enough sort of explorations in different areas could eventually maybe have that same power for somebody else that that had had for me.
0: Wow. So I think that it's really interesting that you were saying that you were trying different types of writing. You were saying this before. Uh, you're trying different types of writing because you ne- don't know the one that's going to be successful and take off. So you tried, you did playwriting, you've done script writing, you did um, the Boone Shepherd era um, for, for in, in terms of young adults. Did you just, because um, some people know they want to write adult fiction. They don't want to write plays uh, because it is a very different medium. Um, did you, were you really exploring all of the different formats so that you could find the thing that was going to happen?
2: I wish I could say that I was or that there was that much intent behind it. <laughs> uh, I think retrospectively, it the best way I can put it is that it was accidentally the best apprenticeship I could have done. Whereas in reality, I think I was more just just desperate to find what was going to work for me. So I was, I was really, really keen to try everything that that's not to say that everything I was trying or everything I was writing in, in, I guess what you'd call my creative apprenticeship was, was, uh, some sort of desperate attempt to, you know, be like, what about this? What about this? What about this? I think that implies that I wasn't doing it because I was enjoying it, which is is quite far from the truth. You know, I really enjoyed writing theatre and I still enjoy writing theatre. And I was very lucky in that the school I went to for my last few years of high school had a really intense, really in-depth theatre programme that introduced me to a lot of really exciting plays that kind of would foster in me a bit of a love for the form of theatre and, a bit of excitement in, in again, trying to write my own and trying to to emulate and capture the things that I'd really loved and the plays that have really inspired me. Mm. But, but really, I think it was just the fact that I felt for so long that I had so many different stories I wanted to tell. And sometimes you just realise that, okay, a play is a really good medium for this story. If the story is going to be really character-driven and really mm. dialogue-driven and quite contained, then a play is probably the best way to tell that story. Whereas if it's going to be... Quite visual and quite uh, colorful and explosive, then maybe screen is the best way to tell that story. You know, I mean, provided you can get the budget to tell it in a way that's remotely effective. And if you're going to have something that is going to be a bit more ambitious, but also needs to have the ability for introspection at the same time, then prose is probably the best road for that as well. So, so really, again, it was just that trial and error and it was just that, okay, what's going to be the best way for me to tell this story. And on top of that, realistically, what's going to be the best way for me to be able to get this story in front of people. I mean, theater, I think theater is immensely underrated as a training ground for young writers because Mm. when you write a novel, you, you, You might be able to get a few friends to read it and you might be able to pay for a manuscript assessment and all of that. But it's very, very hard to get it in front of enough people to get a consensus on whether it works or not. Because, you know, a lot of people don't have the time to sit down and read a 200-page PDF. Whereas with theatre, you know, if you you write something that can easily be performed with a handful of actors and not a very big budget, you can perform that anywhere. You know, you can perform that upstairs in a pub. And there are plenty of theatres, particularly around Melbourne, where you can strike deals where you don't have to pay anything up front. And they'll just take a slice of what you make in the door at the end. And that is a really, really great avenue to experiment because all of the cast members and the director and whoever, they'll all bring in their friends and family. You'll bring in your friends and family. And if it's good, they will bring in more people and it will spread from there. And if it's bad, you will learn very quickly. But even that is immensely valuable. So, so, you know, I think theater was probably, probably this, no, I was about to say the smartest thing, uh, Mm -hmm. The smartest thing I did, but that would imply that there was any intent in it whatsoever. But <laughs> theatre was definitely the most useful thing that I did, and yeah. um, and I learned so so much from going down that road.
0: So after you did that, and then you did um your young adult novels, you write this thriller. How? What was the reaction from publishers? You know, did they go, uh, oh, but didn't you? Do, aren't you YA? <laughs> you know.
2: Yeah, I um, I think there was a little bit of that to a degree, but. But I don't know, I mean, because even I, I've got to say with The Hunted, it was, it was one of those things where I had absolutely no idea whether it was going to work or not. Because, again, like I, like I said before, you know, I'd never written anything like that before. And mm-hmm. it was so at odds with what I was at least in a limited sense known for within, I guess, the, the literary scene at large. And so when, even when I finished it and I hit send and I sent it to, spoiler alert, my now agent, I remember hitting send and thinking, oh, God, no, 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 I've screwed that up. That was absolutely not ready. I should not have put that out there. What have I done? What have I done? I've just absolutely ruined any chance I had. But again, somehow it was the thing that caught on. So it's funny because I think that The hunted probably, and I don't want to speak for anybody at HarperCollins or at Faber in the UK or any of the other you know amazing publishers who've published it around the world, mm-hmm. but I do think that it maybe surprised some of them as much as it did me because one thing I heard a lot from, from people in the publishing scene was – that this was very different to a lot of what was going on Mm. or a lot of what was really popular at the time. And, you know, I think that made the hunted in some ways a risk, but maybe gave it like, at least from an advertising perspective, a kind of freshness that made it stand out a little bit in the market. I I don't really know. I'm not, I'm probably a bit too, uh, a bit too sort of naive about the way that these things work to be able to speak to that with any authority whatsoever. But But no, you know, it it somehow seemed to land with publishers and that was more than I ever, ever could have expected or hoped for.
0: Well, not just publishers and readers, but tell us about the film adaptation.
2: Well, it's funny because the film actually sold before the book did. Really? Yeah. So I think that that was actually (laughs) one one of the kind of big game changers early on in The Hunted's journey to publication was that Tara was going out with it and sort of beginning to suss out a few different publishers. But the <laughs> first thing she did was that she sent it to Jerry Collagen, who is an, uh, an agent and a manager who works in LA. So Jerry, Jerry was behind, I think, um, quite a few massive deals, including Big Little Lies and The Life of Pi, the film adaptations thereof. Mm. And Jerry was really quick to read it. And he was sort of one of its earliest advocates and one of its biggest supporters early on. And he very quickly got it across some of the biggest desks in Hollywood. And the interest was shockingly immediate. And I feel like when I say things like that, it probably comes off like it's, you know, a typical writer being self-deprecating. But you've got to understand that like I studied screenwriting. I went to LA a few years ago. I, I pitched to like many, many production companies over there. Mm. And I'd kind of long since given up ever getting any genuine interest from anyone over in LA. So the the speed at which The Hunted got picked up was absolutely insane to me. And I think it was... That excitement, that interest from Hollywood that got quite a few ears pricking up over here as well in the literary scene. Right. So, The Hunted sold quite fast in both film and book form, but I think it was the speed at which it got snapped up as a film that led to, I suppose, the speed at which it got snapped up as a book.
0: But what kind of speed? Can you just well, it was, uh, it was talk realistic. about that? realistic. was
2: only a few weeks. Um, really? like, I think it was, I think it was, I think from memory, it was about, it was about five days from mm. me sign from Tara sending it out and me signing the contract with her, to Vertigo, who are one of the production companies involved in the film, saying we want to go ahead with this. No, and then it was only a couple of weeks after that that I think HarperCollins swept in. Wow, I, I, I could be, I could be like really condensing. The time there, it might just be because that period was such an insane whirlwind in my life of just like checking my emails regularly and feeling yes. like I had these, you know, life-changing messages coming in from every angle. But, but I really think it was, if not that quick, it was not much longer than that. It was, it was a really, really swift process.
0: Was that surreal for you? Did you kind of go, Oh, does this happening?
2: Like beyond surreal? Because again, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd been trying to get across the line with publishers and agents and, and film people for so, so long mm. that I remember just thinking at the time, like, man, if I'd known that the hunted was going to be like, you know, this immediately or, yeah. or, or be met with this much immediate enthusiasm, I would have written horror years ago, you know, <laughs> but, um but, but yeah, you know, it was, it was surreal because I just didn't think it could work that way. I didn't think that there was a world in which, that could happen, at least not to me, because we all hear the stories, you know, the yeah. dream stories about getting swept up by a major publisher and having, you know, the life changing offer and whatever else it was. But mm. but you you hear enough of them when you're a writer to know that they are the absolute minority. And mm. so when something that's comparable to that does happen in your own life, you know, I, I, I still think in some ways, I haven't yet come to terms with exactly how (laughs) massive The Hunted was for me and exactly how much my life changed after that book.
0: So obviously all of that whirlwind happened. During that time, had you already started on The Inheritance?
2: Yes, I had. So it was when Tara first picked up The Hunted, You know, she had said to me, it would be really great if we could have a a rough pitch for a potential second book to go out with as well. Mm. And in retrospect, I think that she probably just meant a second book in general, but I read that as a sequel. Yeah. And when I'd written The Hunted, I'd immediately become, or immediately upon starting to write from her perspective, become very, very enamored with the character of Maggie. Like, yeah. And I've said this in a lot of different interviews, but she really is one of those characters who Just kind of writes herself, you know. Like you almost don't decide anything. She just does her thing, and you hold on for dear life. (laughs) But all through writing The Hunted, you know, there there wasn't a lot of time in The Hunted for for introspection or character analysis or anything because it was so frenetic and violent and intense and high stakes. But by the end of The Hunted, I was like, I really want to know more about you. I feel like I've only just Mm. scratched the surface and gotten little glimmers of who you are, but. It was just this overwhelming feeling of being like, yeah, I'm finished with that particular story and with the majority of the characters and what happened in The Hunted, but I, I knew that I wasn't finished with Maggie. You know, I knew that I wanted yes. to take her on. I knew that I wanted to explore her further. So The Inheritance really was my chance to do that and so when tara kind of responded and said that that was the idea she really liked out of i think the three or four different ideas i'd sent her i just dove straight in in fact i think that same day Mm. she said i really like this one i think that we should kind of package this with the hunted i think i started writing the book that day and i started writing it not really knowing where it was going just knowing that Maggie would be hiding out somewhere and that circumstance would mean she would have to return to Melbourne and face up to what happened in her past but mm. you know I wasn't too sure on what the full extent of her past was and so the first draft of the book which was what I ended up with some tweaks submitting to HarperCollins was actually drastically different to the book that's on shelves at the moment and it was really yeah yeah so it was um so so I kind of hit this point with it where I think I got about halfway through the book and the mistake I'd made, which was starting to write as early as I did, came back to bite me in a big way where I realized I didn't know how it ended. I wasn't really Mm -hmm. clear on who the antagonist was. I wasn't really clear on what I was trying to say with the book. And so I started doing something about halfway through writing the initial version of the manuscript that I don't think any writer should ever do and this is gonna sound really weird, probably to anyone who isn't a writer, but I started making it up. And you know, you you, you really don't want to be making it up. You want it, You want to feel like it's coming to you. You want to right. feel like you're turning the story over in your head, you're shaping it, and doors are opening ahead of you, and you're going, of course that's what happens, of course that's what happens. Mm-hmm. Go down this road, this is right, this is natural, this is the correct path. And I wasn't doing that, I was thinking, okay, well, let's just have Maggie do this, and let's just have the antagonist be this, and let's just have this be this, and this be this. and." it of course it didn't work. And by the time I finished it, I was so in the reeds with it that I couldn't see it clearly anymore. And I probably knew subconsciously on some level that the book wasn't pulling its weight the way it needed to. And it really took Catherine kind of coming back and very kindly saying to me, okay, so this is not a great book. Um, there's some good material here, particularly in the first half, but we need to rework that. And I mean, you know, Catherine Milne at HarperCollins is, i probably would say the maybe the greatest editor in the world, because even I remember when she gave me the notes on the hunted and she gave me 20 pages of notes on the hunted. And I remember my only feeling being, as I read through the notes, Oh my God, I get to take credit for all of this. This is amazing because she was just like (laughs) any solid gold page after page after page. And like, amazing directions on how to how to fix and how to tweak and how to how to make it better and how to really realize the potential of the book in the draft yeah. that I'd given her and she did the same thing with the inheritance but the inheritance kind of required much more major surgery than The Hunter did. But really, it was the suggestions that Catherine made about how to approach the story and how to come at it and how to look at it and consider what it had to be that unlocked a lot of the stuff in that book that I'm now really, really proud of. And I, I can't believe I'm saying this because if you'd asked me at the start of this year or late last year when I was desperately trying to salvage this manuscript, I would have been mm-hmm. like, it's going to be a disaster. People are going to hate it. But mm-hmm. right now, like, I like it a lot more than I like The hunted. And, you wow. know, I was very proud of The hunted, But I'm so much more proud of the inheritance.
0: All right. So tell us, can you give us a bit of a timeline? So, you know, the day that you started writing when Tara got back to you. So can you give us a bit of a timeline of how long that first draft took and then how long you did the major surgery for?
2: Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think now. Uh, It was 2019, early 2019, that The Hunted was acquired. So I would have started writing The Inheritance in February or March 2019, I want to say. And Mm -hmm. I think that first draft manuscript maybe took me about two or three months to finish because it's not that long a book. You know, it's only 65, 70,000 words or Mm -hmm. something. And I think it was probably even shorter in that original version. And then I kind of sat on it for a while because I was so caught up in in editing The Hunted and getting that up to scratch. And then mm-hmm. similar shortly thereafter with The True Colour of Little White Lie, my YA book that was picked up by HarperCollins, which came out between The Hunted and The Inheritance. So it sort of sat uh, – it kind of sat untouched for a little while there. And I think I submitted it to HarperCollins finally around the time The Hunted was released, if memory serves. So kind of around uh, – July last year and then yeah July 2020 so Mm -hmm. it sort of sat with them for a couple of months and then I think Catherine probably got back to me around August or September Mm -hmm. and so really it was like the last few months of last year and the first month or so of this year that was that major surgery that was me just like frantically pulling my hair out trying to make it work trying to find the book calling Catherine frantically like every day being Mm -hmm. like what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And I mean, Catherine has the patience of saints to like put up with some of those like frantic, chaotic call- calls from me. And you know, hearing probably like the 20 different third acts I came up with at different points oh for the God. book. And you know, it really was just kind of like stumbling in the dark, being like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Until finally the path the book had to take revealed itself but like very, very slowly. And, you know, I was so, so lucky that I had Catherine's guidance all through this. And then I think it probably was about uh, January 2021 this year or February that I finally submitted what was close enough to the mm. finished book for it to go into the next round of editing and everything.
0: Wow. Now take me back to those two to three months, the initial two to three months where you were just getting into it. Um when you're in the, that, the depths of writing, do you have a writing routine or any kind of goal on the number of words you want to produce every day or any kind of structure to get the words on the page?
2: So I've, I suppose my approach to this has changed a little bit over the years. I used to be very, very hard on myself about writing two thousand words a day. You know, at least two thousand words a day. So if That's I would hit two thousand words a day, I would. It, it is a lot, yeah. And I would consider that like a reasonable writing day. But mm-hmm. I would only really kind of feel like I'd done good work if I hit three to 5,000 words. And then I'd be like, all right, I've had a, a day? Really day, a day. Yeah. Now this was <laughs> this going back a couple of years. So I used to be very, very hard on myself about hitting those self-imposed deadlines. And if I wrote under a thousand words, I'd be very, very hard on myself. But over, over time that's changed because I've realized that I would rather write 1,000 good words yeah. than three to 5,000, mediocre ones that I'm then going to have to sift through and, and really kind of, you know, make, make better. And I think that the tipping point for me was doing NaNoWriMo one year and Trying to force myself to hit the daily word word <laughs> count and try to exceed it because I was doing it with some other writer friends. And I was sort of my, my innately competitive streak was kind of trying to get the highest daily word count. And then I remember looking back over the manuscript that I finished and being like, this is terrible. Like this is just absolutely atrocious because I wasn't writing because I wanted to write. I was writing because I was trying to hit this dead this um this word count. And consequently, I've just forced a bunch of writing that wasn't ready to be written. And that's the worst possible way to write a book. Mm-hmm. So Nowadays, I try to write at least a thousand words a working day. I don't write on weekends I unless I'm really under the pump. Mm. And I don't impose that much of a schedule on myself. I kind of just have the list of things I have to get through that day, whether it's promotion stuff, whether it's writing stuff, whether it's editing stuff. And my rule for myself is if I have all of that done like before midday, then the rest of the day is mine. If yeah. it takes me until nine o'clock at night to finish it, then so be it. That's what I've got to do. But for me, it's less about I sit down and write at this time, I work at this time, I do this, I write here, whatever, and more about just being like however I arrive at hitting those daily targets, fine, mm-hmm. um, as long as I do it. And if I do it early, great. If I do it late, fine, whatever. But but really it is just about kind of laying out those targets for myself and just trying to hit them. And, you know, I, I definitely have found that – by taking the pressure off myself about hitting a particularly high word count per day, the writing is across the board just a lot better. Like I think, it, I don't know who it was um, who once said, it was it was some really well-known writer who said, said you should always stop while you've still got some in the tank. Mm. And I really adhere to that. Like if I stop writing for the day and I want to keep writing, then I know that that, I know that I've written good stuff. You know, I know that I've like hit something good because if I'm Mm -hmm. excited about it and I haven't worn myself out, then that to me just suggests that what I've come up with Mm -hmm. is hopefully going to land for somebody else, you know. Mm.
0: But when you say that, um, you know, you have a bunch of your to-do list, basically, you know, like um, promotional stuff or answering emails and that, and you try to do them first, do you not fall into any kind of form of procrastination and really drag that out so that you don't, Constantly. you kind of avoid writing.
2: Like <laughs> right. when I, yeah. what I just said before about, um you know, if I finish by midday, then yeah. I, I, the rest of the day is mine. I'm done for the day. I think that's happened twice. <laughs> like that is, that is not a common occurrence. And I think the okay. way that I put it before probably made it sound like, Oh, you know, sometimes this happens. It's like, no, very, very rarely. It is, it is incredibly uncommon that that happens because of course I procrastinate, you know, I, I, I get up and I, read stuff online and I read a book for a while and then I sort of mm. sit in front of my computer intending to write and then yeah. there's some video on YouTube that comes up and I watch <laughs> that and then I message somebody and I get caught up in something else and then next thing it's already midday and I haven't written a word and this that that is like so so common for me. I'm a terrible procrastinator but what I do find helps is that before I, I try to take my dog for a walk before I write every day mm. so Before I actually sit down and start trying to put words on the page, I take my dog for a long walk and I just kind of think through what it is I want to write that day. And I kind of play it out in my head and I try to hear the voices and I try to figure out a few lines that are going to work. And usually by the time I get home, I'm ready to write. And if I just Mm -hmm. sit down in that moment and don't let myself get distracted, I'll normally write for like the next couple of hours easily and get some really good stuff done. Like Because I feel like doing that is like the perfect warm up that I guess for want of a less cliche term gets me in the zone and gets me ready and yeah. raring to write
0: yeah awesome and so do you also write late at night or do you have a cutoff where after which you're
2: useless no I used to I used but I used to be a lot closer nocturnal you know I used to work hospitality and oh, I, I worked at Dracula's for quite a few years <laughs> so they down yeah it was a man do I have some stories about that place but um but yeah so I used to I used to get home at like you know midnight to three in the morning. And then I'd sit and I'd write. And, mm-hmm. you know, back in those days, cause I would often be working at Dracula's until, you know, three, four, five, sometimes if it was oh a particularly full on night, um, right. I would, I would kind of have to write later in the day or at night because I'd be spending the first half of the day in bed. Whereas now my hours are a lot more normal. So mm. it would, I, I would say it's pretty rare for me at this point to write, uh, after five. Like, usually I kind of try to keep relatively normal working hours and be done by five. Um, sometimes that doesn't PM, happen. I, I also, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm also a notorious pub writer. So, right. you know, in non lockdown times, I really like to go down to a little bar down the road and write there. And often I'll go down there at like, you know, uh, four or five. And in those cases, then yeah, I'll write until like, you know, six or seven because I kind of like being cool. Away you from mean home. like
0: write and drink? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. <laughs> no, okay. I, I, I,
2: yep. Beer and writing. It's um. It's, I've never thought it's,
0: of that because I am a big cafe writer, so I I understand the uh, the thing about the environment. I've never thought to do it in a pub. Oh, I should try well, that out.
2: Yeah. It's the the only thing is you just have to like you just have to be a little bit conservative with it because you know um <laughs> there is, there is a certain point where you've been at the pub a certain amount of time and you might have potentially had one more beer than you should have. And that's not (laughs) going to help your writing. I mean, there is an argument to be made that I think a lot of uh, drinking writers have made over the years that like a drink kind of takes the edge off enough that you are that little bit less self-critical and it can flow more easily. But that can also go too far where it's sort of like you have no inner critic. So you just put whatever you think on the page and then you end up with total Mm. crap. So, (laughs) so, you know, like I, I definitely love kind of writing with a beer But beyond that, I think it gets into slightly dangerous territory for the work
0: yeah, sure. And I suppose also, I mean, in Melbourne, you've got quite different licensing laws to say us in Sydney and you have um, cool, groovy, a lot more cool, groovy bars that are probably conducive to writing. But also for listeners who are not familiar with Dracula's, perhaps <laughs> perhaps you could just describe it so that they have an understanding.
2: Oh, man. Um, <laughs> how do you describe Dracula's if you never went there? Um, Dr- Dracula's was a it, it well, actually it still is up on the gold coast the one up there is still running but um oh. it was a theater restaurant in melbourne like a vampire themed theater restaurant and it ran for about 30 35 years before it closed down but i worked there right out of high school so between 2010 to 2014 or thereabouts i want to say and it was so strange you know it was this real like they, they would have a show every night and The customers would come in, it was like a dinner and a show type thing, but as staff members, you were characters, you were vampire characters. So (laughs) I wore the most ridiculous makeup and costumes over those years. And I used to always say to people that Dracula's was like, well, Dracula's was incredibly therapeutic for anybody who'd ever worked hospitality because you got to tell customers exactly what you thought of them and they thought you were joking. (laughs) <laughs> they thought it was part of the bit. So, you know, I mean, it was the most chaotic place to work. Like, you know, staff members getting full-on food fights on the floor, um, you know, tearing up napkins and placemats and throwing them at customers and, you know, stealing unfinished food and eating it in front of them. i was all not very oh. COVID safe now. But, you know, And but the thing was a lot of – for the customers and the people going there, that was kind of what they signed up for. And yeah. part of the trick was you always got a few people in who – And I don't know why they went to Dracula's if that was what they wanted. But you always get a few people in who just kind of want the very demure dinner and a show. And you had to get very used to or or get very good at recognizing those people early and just leaving them be. But Mm. the reality was that 90% of the people who came to Dracula's, that they wanted the audience participation thing. They wanted chaos. They wanted fun and they wanted insanity. And they wanted to walk away being like, what a crazy experience. And the thrill being on the other side of it was kind of being able to give that to them. But (laughs) I suppose the... Flip side to that is that a lot of people always say to me, oh, it must've been a really fun place to work. And I'm like, yeah, it was a fun place to work. It was also work. Like it was really, really full on. Like you would get there at four or five in the afternoon to start and you really would not stop until sometimes up to five in the morning. Like That's it crazy. was, it was really like, you know, long hours, intense hours, and you could not let your energy flag. You know, you had the few breaks where the show was on and you'd be back behind the scenes like polishing cutlery or whatever, <laughs> but then you had to be back on the floor. You had to be energetic and you had to try to maintain that energy and that verve, even if you were dealing with like, you know, a particularly difficult customer or, or whatever was going on behind the scenes. So it was, it was a place that I really enjoyed having worked at, but you could not pay me <laughs> enough money to go back there.
0: And then after a night like that, you would go home and write. Now, that in between, um, uh, as you say, The Hunted and The Inheritance, you've released a young adult novel. You obviously have to switch hats when you're writing different types of books. What do you do to switch hats or change gears so that you're in, okay, I'm writing – um, you know, uh, this really gritty kind of story. Now and now, I'm writing something for much younger, uh, a much younger audience. What do you do to change gears?
2: I wish I knew the answer to that question because <laughs> some, sometimes you just can't. You know, like sometimes you're because because the thing, the reality is, you know, I mean, I've had I've had two books out this year, and I've got an Audible original coming out next month as well. So I've had a very full on year, and I've had to jump between. And that's not even to mention like the ongoing work on the Hunted film or like other other film yeah. and TV projects that I can't totally publicly announce yet, and and trying to work on my next YA book which comes out next year. So mm. I've, I've been jumping between quite a few different story worlds over the last few months, mm. and. And sometimes you just can't. Like sometimes, you know, you sit down to write Maggie and you're still in the headspace of True Colour. You know, you're still in that kind of really? quirky teen, coming of age, romantic So what comedy. do you
0: do? What do you do? What happens?
2: I, I just try to go for long walks. And and I know I, I can't, that probably sounds like a really naff response, but I really just try to go for a long walk and just put myself in the mindset, you know, just, wow. just go walk along, just kind of start thinking about where was I last time with this story? Um, mm. Rereading the work sometimes really helps. Like, mm. you know, I might reread the last couple of pages of you know if if it's a maggie hunted inheritance type story i might go back and like reread those last couple of pages just to try to recapture the voice and just to try to be like okay cool like how am i writing this as opposed to how i'm writing true color because it is totally different like the Mm. the prose style of something like the hunted or the inheritance is a lot more terse and direct and all about building tension. Whereas something like true color is a lot more conversational, you know, it's first person, it's Mm. quirky. It's supposed to be funny. The idea is that it's this kid, like telling you his story and it's kind of written in a style of like, uh, chaotic, sort of scattered, awkward teenager trying to tell you this story and running off in tangents and fumbling over his words and all of that. And, you know, it is a totally different voice. So, so I think the most important thing is just kind of having a bit of separation between doing one and the other. I mean, I've had days where I've had to do, you know, writing on something like True Color and then something like The Inheritance on the same day. And you Mm -hmm. really want to give yourself like an hour between that to just like go clear your head, try to kind of shift gears so that you're in the correct mindset for, whatever you have to move into in the afternoon and then just kind of hope for the best. But, you know, I mean, in a perfect world, we would all have the space and the time and the money to just like only write what we want to write when we want Mm -hmm. to write it, when we're in the mood for it. But that's just not the case. So you just kind of have to get used to being able to shift from one story world to a completely different one, almost at the drop of a hat and just kind of hope it works, you know?
0: Yeah. So from what you said before, you kind of started making it up before you, you know, um, got some feedback from, from Catherine. Does that mean you typically don't plot out your, or your stories or do you have some skeleton that you're hanging things off?
2: See, it's, I, I love this question because I'm so fascinated by the, the plotter and the pantser binary of writers mm. because, you know, I mean, I, I know writers who – Will not plan a thing. you know, they will just start start writing yeah. and just let the story go where it goes, and somehow they tend to end up with solid gold. Whereas I also know writers who rigidly want every single beat plotted out before before mm. they start actually writing. So I, I think I'm probably in the middle in that. Mm particularly after the experience of that first draft of The Inheritance where I didn't know how it was going to end, I like to have an idea of what I'm working towards. So I like to kind of come up with a really rough skeleton of being like, all right, these are the major beats. These are the major things that are going to happen. This is kind of what it's working towards or where I think it's going to end. But for me, I find that I, I don't plan too much because I find that a lot of the surprises in the story happen in the actual writing or happen in the, Mm. in like, you know, the long walk that you go on before you start writing for the day and you kind of are planning out the specifics of how this next stretch of the story is going to play out or how this particular scene is going to play out. And then you'll have that moment where you stop dead and your dog looks at you really confused being like, what are you doing? (laughs) And you go, no, that's not what happens. This is what happens. And those for me, the best moments, like, and I've had a few of those recently in this new book where I've kind of been stopping and like standing on the spot, like pulling my hair out, staring around like hoping that nobody's looking at me thinking what a crazy person i am and just Mm -hmm. being like oh oh my god like that's not what happens this is what happens and i I, it's really important to me to have room for those moments because Mm -hmm. i worry that if you plan things too i I think i always go back to the um the anecdote about well it's not really an anecdote it's more of a cautionary tale about how i met your mother writers. and you Mm -hmm. know because if anybody's seen that show like the whole thing with that was that they they filmed their ending I think in their first or second season and they'd only thought that they would go for like three seasons or so. And they'd filmed this ending and they had this, Uh this conclusion set in stone. And then they ended up going for nine seasons. And naturally over the course of their nine seasons, things changed. Characters Mm -hmm. had chemistry. They didn't expect some characters connected who weren't supposed to connect originally. And as it went on, their original planned ending made less and less sense. And Mm -hmm. I mean, there have been millions of words written on the Internet about how famously awful the How I Met Your Mother finale was. And to me, that is the strongest possible counter argument against being too rigid in your planning, because mm-hmm. sometimes the story just doesn't go in the right way or the way you expect. And if you try to rigidly hold on to what you'd originally planned, thinking it's going to be, you know, it's, got, it's the be all and end all, then mm-hmm. you might miss the more interesting paths or the more natural paths that story is pushing you in. So for me, I like to kind of sit somewhere in the middle and be willing to run off down a strange rabbit hole. If the story decides to go that way rather yeah. than, you know, uh, desperately adhere to what I came up with before I actually started writing the story and really found the voice and found the characters and started to learn who they were. So, but, you know, I, I like to have a rough roadmap, you know, I like to have mm. kind of that, rough. Uh, the, I guess the tracks in front of me, that I can more or less follow so that I know what I'm working towards, but I'll just be open to, to straying off route if I need to.
0: What was the hardest, most challenging thing about writing The Inheritance?
2: I think it was, so one of my favourite TV shows is, Banshee. Have you ever seen Banshee? It's, um, I
0: love Banshee. Oh, how good is it? I love it so much.
2: <laughs> it's, it's, oh, it's, and I've never seen anything like it. Like it's Nothing. such a, it's one of my biggest inspirations, but you know, I, I adore Banshee and I think, yes, you know, that, so that third season of Banshee was oh, probably one of the best things I've ever seen on TV. Like just so good. Out, every episode, it just topped itself, you know, like it just yes. went higher and higher and more ridiculous and more insane. And and every time you're wondering, how are they going to, like, you, you can't get more extreme and more ridiculous, mm. but, but they just did. Mm. Like, oh, I'm so, I, I never meet anybody else who likes magic. <laughs> this is so exciting to me.
0: Love it. Anthony oh, Star is fantastic. So, so good. Oh, he's amazing. and Amazing. You know,
2: it's and now he's kind of obviously he's getting his um oh, you know, he's getting his moment with the boys. So but, good. And I just kind of look at I look at I go, you'll always be Lucas Hood to me, man. You'll always yeah. be you know the sheriff in Banshee. Um so so just <laughs> for, for those who don't know, Banshee is a basic <laughs> TV show about a retired jewel thief, or no, not a retired, a a jewel thief who spent years in prison and he escapes, tries to track down his former lover who he believes has the jewels that they stole together the night he was arrested. And basically finds out that she's now married and shacked up and living in this town called Banshee and has changed her name, is living a totally different life. And he ends up witnessing the murder of the new sheriff in the town Mm. and having nothing else to do and having the Russian mob after him and having, uh, you know, a whole world of bad guys out to get him. He just takes the sheriff's identity and just basically (laughs) decides to be the sheriff of this small town. And Banshee is a ridiculous show. It is completely <laughs> absurd. But what, for me, made Banshee work was the fact that it never lost sight of the heart of the characters. And all the way through it, it did amazing character work with all of these people who should have been completely ridiculous and implausible superheroes and really made you care. And I don't think I'd ever seen anything that that so successfully walked the fine line between emotional depth and pulpy action, ridiculousness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But Fancy to me demonstrated that that could be done. You know, I feel like there's like, here's a story. I don't think I've ever told anyone before, but when the hunted was first going out to different publishers, it it got the same note from a lot of publishers in the U S who turned it down. And that note was it's too violent and ridiculous to be seen as a literary or a respectable book. But And this is this is going to sound like a humble brag, but this is genuinely Mm. what like several publishers came back with. But Mm. they were like, it's too well written and thoughtful to be, you know, uh, to be pulp. So what do we do with it? Right, right. I mean, I found that really almost like I found that a massive compliment, I've got to say, because I was like, well, that's kind of what I was hoping for. And to me, I guess I look at something like Banshee as being something that that really was able to, you know, to, to really make you invest but it had its cake and it ate it too. You know, it, it yeah. could give the crazy action scenes but make you care. And that was really what I wanted to achieve with The Hunted and The Inheritance. You know, I mm. didn't want them to be books about nothing. I didn't want them to be disposable books. I wanted them to have something to say. And I think they both do have yeah. something to say about very different things. But beyond that, I wanted to make sure that they still had that ridiculous action pulp that you could laugh at. You know, I mean, uh, there yeah. was this review recently of The Inheritance that was talking about, you know, how she was like, oh, I've never laughed so hard at some action scenes in, you know, in all my years of reading. And to mm-hmm. me, I was like, thank you. Like I love hearing that because <laughs> a lot of the action, The Inheritance, is supposed to be ridiculous. Like, and I always said that about The Hunted. There were people who were put off by The Hunted because of the violence or the extremity, and and I understand that. And you know, it's not for everyone, and I get that. But I also have said from day one that The Hunted wasn't intended to be taken 100% seriously. Like it's not a it's not a parody or a joke book mm. or anything. It's got something to say, but it is ultimately ridiculous. Like what happens in The Hunted could never happen in real life. And you kind of – the book does kind of require you to sort of meet it on that level a little bit. So for me the hardest thing with the Inheritance was maintaining that because I, yeah, I right. wanted to tell a story about, about parenthood and about – the relationship Mm. between parents and kids and about reaching that moment in young adulthood where you realize that what your parents give you, you don't have to keep. And, and it goes beyond parents. You know, it also goes to just like anybody who influences you when you're young, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's a teacher. But I I really think that there are those moments in our lives where the people who we have admired and looked up to, and in some ways shaped ourselves after let us down. And Mm. we then have to confront who we are, Outside of that influence, and that I think is one of the key steps in coming of age really and that was the story I wanted to tell in the inheritance and I wanted to explore that and and explore it with a particular emphasis on parenthood and at the same time you know I wanted to have ridiculous decapitations and blowing up warehouses and (laughs) the action scenes and, you know, a home alone sequence where she turns Mm. a Hunter's cabin into a, you know, a trap filled death maze. Mm. And (laughs) I wanted to have that and have the emotional depth at the same time. Now I would never suggest that that was successful because I really think that once the book is out in the world, it really is up to the reader to decide whether it works or not. You know, I don't, I don't believe in, in responding to your critics, whether they're positive or negative. I think you just kind of have to hear what they say and be like, you know what? They, they, they have a right to however they respond to it. And you just have to decide whether you think that response is fair or not. But beyond that, you know, you just kind of have to move on and do your thing. So that was the biggest challenge really was just kind of trying
3: to,
2: without feeling like it had this ridiculous level of tonal whiplash, making sure that I could try to pull off the banshee trick and have my cake and eat it too.
0: Oh, I love it. And honestly, I could talk about this, about your writing and about Banshee uh, for hours, but um, we probably need to wrap up now. So my final question to you is what are your top three tips for aspiring writers who hope to be in a position that you're in one day?
2: Okay, so I would say every day try to read a little, watch a little and write a little. So that's what I try to do apart from obviously, you know, I give myself weekends off now, but every day I try to read something new, watch something new and write something new. And if that's just like one chapter of a book and one, like half hour episode of always sunny in Philadelphia, whatever. (laughs) But I always just, I, I just really think that, you know, um, the way that we refuel the tank and the way that we keep inspired and the way that we want to, or the way that we make ourselves want to keep telling stories is by consuming stories, you know? Mm -hmm. And every little bit of writing you do, even if it's a hundred words, 500 words, whatever it may be, you're going to get better. You're going to learn new things. You're going to advance things a little bit. You know, the only way to be a writer is to write really. But I also think the second most important thing is is to read and to watch and just to consume other stories and to learn from them, whether they're good or bad. Um, The second tip is to write theater actually i know that's really specific oh. but for all the reasons i said earlier i just i really think that it's just so overlooked like every young yeah. writer i meet wants to be an author or a screenwriter but the reality is you know it's hard to get a book published and it's hard to get a film made because you know to get a film – like even a low-budget film is still going to require a million dollars. And who has yeah. that sitting in their back pocket? <laughs> so, you know, with theatre, you, you can make theatre basically for free. You know, you do a profit mm-hmm. share arrangement. And if you write something that works in a low-budget setting, you will always find actors and directors and brilliant creatives everywhere who are willing to help you make that happen. And you will find an audience. It might be a small audience, but you will find an audience. Yeah. So and the, the other thing about theater is that you, you actually just can't escape from how the audience responds. You know, like no. if you're sitting there in the room and somebody's bored, somebody's checking their phone, somebody's yawning, somebody walks out, somebody falls asleep, it's right there in front of you. You know, you can't look away from it. And mm. likewise, you will have a front row seat to when things work you know when people gasp at your twists when people laugh at your jokes when people respond to what's going on on stage and are enraptured you can tell because you can feel that energy in the room and there's kind of no quicker way to learn what works and what doesn't work so i i strongly recommend that Mm -hmm. and finally i this is less advice and more more a warning or more just something to keep in mind and that is that it is a war of attrition you know like All of those stories you hear about, you know, your Christopher Parlinis or whoever who get kind of swept up at 15, don't think that you have to be like that. You know, when I was 15, I would read that story and I would think, well, I've got to get published before I'm 20. Otherwise, I'm a failure. You know, I used to think that Mm. that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's completely ridiculous. And it's completely ridiculous to put any limit on yourself. I mean, some of the greatest writers in the world didn't get published till they were in their 50s or 60s. And sometimes it really just is a matter of keeping at it until you eventually find the story that breaks through. And sometimes that story is not the one you expected. Before The Hunted, you know, I had a book that I'd been working on for a decade that I thought was going to be the thing that was going to make it for me because there was nothing else I'd ever worked on that I'd put so much into. Wow. But... It, it's not that that book still isn't published and the hunt that I wrote in two months and somehow <laughs> that was the one that got across the line. You, you just never know. So, so, wow. you know, it, it is a war of attrition. You've got to stay persistent and, you know, I mean, talent is the baseline, but mm-hmm. persistence and being willing to learn from your mistakes and being willing to recognize where you've messed up and learn from it and get better. That I think is far more important. Mm.
0: Well, congratulations on The Inheritance. It's going to be huge. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time today, Gabriel.
2: Thank you so much for having me on, Valerie.
0: There we go, Gabriel Bergmoser and The Inheritance. I have no doubt it's going to be a big hit. And I just absolutely love that I finally found somebody who loves the same TV show that I do, Banshee. (laughs) I can't believe you found someone who loves a show that no one else has ever heard of. Oh, obsessed. I was obsessed when it was out. Anyway, I will move on. So this brings us to the end of this week's podcast, Al. Uh, What are you doing in the coming week? Well, to be honest with you, Valerie, I am
1: in the middle of book week and so I am doing a billion online Zoom school visits. Mm -hmm. I -hmm. am the queen currently of online Chats, which is unusual, because you know that generally speaking, I go a long way out of my way to avoid any form of video (laughs) interaction with anyone ever. Um, But you know, it's it's been an interesting year from that perspective because Mm. um, needs must, and a person just has to get over it, and that's something I think that i i think there's a lesson in that for all of us a lot of the time because you and i often talk about when we're talking about you know building your author platform and all of those things and and um we're very good at saying to people look you just got to get on and do it right you just mm. got to like the, all of those things so to be then confronted i mean obviously i have had to work through that process in the creation of you know over 10 years of my sort of um social media stuff um, but video was very much a last frontier for me. Um, mm. You know, even like tiptoeing on to Instagram, I, I rarely posted pictures of myself for a long time um, because I don't like photographs of myself. And so it's, it took me a while to get into the habit of that. And then there was the video thing. And I think um, one thing I've learned over the last year, and I think one thing we've all learned over the last year, is that at the end of the day, mm. you have to do what you have to do, right? And so, the more you do something, the less self-conscious you get about it. And that's been, you know, a a useful thing for me that's come out of this whole, you know, last couple of years experience that we've had is that, um, I have finally jumped over that last frontier into just going, oh, so, you know, people are not sitting there examining my nose and wondering (laughs) why it looks like that, you know, it's because that's, that's what we do to ourselves. Right. Mm. So I think, um, anyway, that's what I'm doing. I'm, trying not to look at myself while I talk to myself (laughs) on Zoom.
0: But it's so true, though. I mean, I had the exact same obstacle or the same block about. Oh my God! All this video, and I used to hate it. I mean, I still don't love it. But I, my hot tip of the week okay. is to work out a system. So you okay. might have a checklist. So one of the things is to make sure there's no bras and undies or anything in the background. A very, very important. <laughs> oh, you although Kerry
1: Sackville, let's talk about that. Kerry <laughs> Sackville became an influencer. Because she'd forgotten to close a cupboard door and so the whole internet got to see that she hangs her bras up on hooks inside the door and everyone was like, why have I never thought of this before?
0: I, I know, and I wrote an astonished. article about it for the. Herald, wrote an article yes. about it because you know <laughs> everything is fodder, right? That's right. So you need a system. That's one, but also for me, I ha- now keep lip gloss on in my top drawer and a hairbrush. Um, but oh. also the other thing that changed my life. Okay, here we go, and got me over you know um, any fear of Zoom. Um, is and this is not sponsored at all. Okay. <laughs> just like it's not sponsored by Gardening Australia. Gardening, this, entire, this entire episode
1: is sponsored by Gardening
0: <laughs> not, Australia. Is the Dyson Air Wrap Styler. And I have not only worked what? out, yeah, the Dyson Air Wrap Styler changed I don't even my life. Know what that is. Oh my God, changed my life. I'm not I sure about your Dyson. hair, but oh no, so good. And now, not only, you know, it's just a learning curve well it can straighten but no it also curls it does many things it can fly to the moon it's it does like, look like it you know fly. designed <laughs> by nasa so but for that price
1: it would want to fly to I the moon i know gallery. so it's very
0: expensive yeah. but um uh, in terms of the money that it has saved me from going to the hairdresser, the money it saved me in terms of the t- time, it is astounding. And so now what the, o- the other thing I've worked out is that with Zoom, because nobody sees the back of your hair, <laughs> is I've worked out just the exact bits to do for Zoom.
1: Oh, you are so funny. I cannot believe <laughs> that we have – this is where we're going with this conversation. We're going down to the details of how many strands of hair Valerie mm-hmm. straightens mm-hmm. for zooms.
0: Not straightens. It's I curl, actually. Oh, sorry. It's can... soft curls. And But I've worked out you only need to do the front bit. So it's a bit weird if you go out afterwards because, you know. Um, but it it's saves so much time. It's great. Anyway, okay, that's my hot tip for the week. Can I just say that mm-hmm. you spent almost an entire episode, like not that long ago, mm-hmm.
1: trying to convince us all to buy a vacuum cleaner? If you remember, <laughs> and, and you now did. <laughs> you are hashtag sponsored by Dyson. <laughs> I cannot believe it.
0: <laughs> I'm not at all. I we need to start, all We things. need to start taking
1: cash for these conversations. <laughs> we
0: need to cash for comment. Like this is ridiculous. Yeah. Anyway, I right, wish enough. we were sponsored. All right. <laughs> Where do we find you online now?
1: Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A L L I S O N T A I T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al-Tate, Altait, A L T A I T. And you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you when you're not playing with your hair?
0: <laughs> You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at com. and also sitting in my garden. Thanks for listening, everyone. We look forward to chatting to you again next time. Oh, bye.